I don't know why this is, but maybe you've noticed this over the years. I gravitate toward the book of Isaiah when it comes Christmas time. I love spending time in the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to do that again with you this year. In our morning messages, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter, the last few verses of chapter 8 and the first couple of verses of chapter 9. And I think it's a, a fantastic passage to study together with you. It would be Isaiah 8, starting in verse 19, and then jumping into chapter 9. Act as if there is no break, okay? As if you don't see a 9 there at all. We're just going to go into the first two verses of chapter 9. So Luke, I mean Isaiah, start with 8, chapter 8, verse 19. When they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry... They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in er anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali with contempt But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What a a wonderful way to bring this to a, a significant statement in verse number two. And that's what we're going to study. The light that shines in the darkness. And I hope that you enjoy this because it speaks of Christ. Heavenly Father, with your word open in front of us, we're about to study from it. And I pray that uh, you will prepare our hearts for this and also our response. For this is not just a message of, of facts. It's a message that captivates the very soul of man, it brings us to a place where decisions are made, where walk is, is followed in the right steps, where we come to know our Savior better. And this is important for us, and I pray that our hearts and minds and our wills are ready to receive what you have for us today. Thank you so much for writing it down for us to read. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Light that shines in darkness. There are some things we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks as we dig into this passage. But I want to define a couple of terms as we start. When I bring up darkness, I'm going to show you from this passage we just read, 19, all the way through chapter 8, 19 through 9, 2. There is a darkness when one rejects God. There's a rejection of God. That will be dark. And yet what's amazing, when God shone his light, he 
He took the initiative. And we're going to emphasize that today. Because they would not have turned to him otherwise. He took the initiative. Next week we're going to talk about darkness again. Rejection of his word. The rejection of his word. And when God's shown the light, it shows God's persistence. It shows God's faithfulness. He will not quit. And then we're going to follow up that with another picture of darkness from this passage. A rejection of God's peace. A rejection of God's peace. And when God's shown that light, shows His mercy. His mercy. Because He saw us, and He saw them especially, in their misery, in their hopelessness. And then finally, we're going to hit the fourth week with darkness, rejecting God's perspective. And the light that God shines in provision, and it's a beautiful thing. He met their need. All the way through, it's going to show one thing first. How man always wanted to turn away from him. And how God, on his part, came to man. Came to man. And that's our Christmas story. It's the scene of darkness when God shines his light. So as we walk through this passage, I'm going to enjoy this with you because there are terms in here you probably read and say, what's that got to do with Christmas? (laughs) A lot of interesting words and names and terms that are not so familiar to us. But I will not beat around the bush and just simply say this. Jesus Christ is the answer to the needs of man. That's where we start. He is the answer. He is that light that we will talk about that blazes in the darkness and changes lives completely and changes lives thoroughly and changes lives forever. That's what he does. And we're going to note that as we go all the way through this. And I could prove it. It's about Christ because in the very context of what we just read, look at verse number 6 of chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's our Savior. That's our Savior. Jesus Christ is the light. In the beginning was the Word, John starts to write in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. That's amazing. Without Him, not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, John writes. The darkness has not overcome it. That same chapter of John, chapter 1, verse number 9, he goes on to say, The true light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who was born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's an amazing thing that we have to say today. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John would say. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen. We are blessed people, aren't we? Here's the great thing. We have Christmas music playing out now. Radio stations. Of course, Walmart's had that since October. But we have a message that has been sung to us in a dozen different ways. Things starting to show up in decorations and things like that. But we know the meaning for it. We know the reason for it. Because we have seen and we have heard and we have believed. And I thank the Lord for captivating my heart and giving me the light. I am so thankful for that. I consider it a miracle, folks. That any one of us is saved is a miracle. That God had done this is a miracle. I thought I'd start with this. I looked up Webster's definition of a miracle. This is what he had to say when he wrote this out back in the 1800s, all right? Literally, a wonder or wonderful thing, but appropriately, in theology, an event or effect contrary to the established constitution or course of things, or a deviation from the known laws of nature, a supernatural event, Miracles can be wrought only by almighty power. New dictionaries won't say it that way. But that is true. It's only what God can do. It's only what God can do. I I love Christmas. You already know that. I love lights. And lights are beautiful, especially when they're set in a dark background. Because then you see them and they just blaze out and, and such like that. And I'm very sorry that um, the gospel message has to be set with a dark setting. But it's still true. It's unfortunate that's the way it is. But that, I think, is what makes it so wondrous to me. This message that we speak of, the birth of Christ, came with great anticipation. We hear the story of the shepherds, and, and I know when we hear the story, even if the kids are doing a play or program or something and they're doing it, we're all waiting for that moment, aren't we, when the angel shows up. He's like, wow, that's going to be so fun. What the anticipation when suddenly they see that glory of the Lord and, and, and it overwhelms them. There's something to look forward to there. Well, there are four things that I look forward to sharing with you. I've already given you the basic outline of what we're going to do. But this is, these are the things God has done to men living in darkness. He initiated the shining of the light. It was his idea. It was his work. It was his miracle. He brought it to them even though they had rejected him. He persisted in shining that light. He was faithful to his promise And like I said, he will not quit, even though they had rejected his word. He was merciful in shining that light. He saw their misery, he saw their hopelessness, 
even though they had rejected his peace, he still shone the light. He provided in the act of shining that light because he met their need, even though they had rejected his way. You can see where the dark side sits on all these. It has to do with mankind. It's a wondrous thing that God would have done anything for a man living in darkness. I want you to look at some things with me, because as we talk about how God initiated the shining of this light in this passage here in Isaiah, it was God who did it. You see it in verse number 2 of chapter 9. The people who walk in darkness. And that's the definition of all the verses that went before it. What they were doing was walking in darkness. Those people will see a great light, he says. Those who were living in that dark land, the light will shine on them. That's what God has done. He initiated the shining of the light. He brought it to them even as they had rejected him. Now there are a lot of different perspectives about the gospel message, I know. Theological arguments left and right. Some people give a lot of credibility to man's approach to God. Some think it's biblically sound to state that man had no desire to seek out God. They debate back and forth on some things, but here's the reality. Man was lost. Man was lost. Hopelessly dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Romans chapter 3. There were none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. We could go on and on and on with passages. But the reality is, if God did not initiate the gospel message, we would have never come to it ourselves. We would not have thought it up. We would not have found a way to make it work. We would not have had any good results from anything we designed. Because that was not our idea. We couldn't have done it. That was God's initiation. In this book called Isaiah, it's a fascinating book, and I I love it very, very much. I could preach the whole book. It's 66 chapters long. It may take us a little while. But I could break it down in simple pieces for you right now. You could divide it almost perfectly in half, in the sense that there are 39 chapters to the first half, and another 27 to the second half. Which is interesting, because there are 39 chapters in the Old, or books in the Old Testament, and 27 in the New Testament. The first half, the first half, some people say, well, there must have been two Isaiahs, the message are so different. No, there wasn't. There's one God who told Isaiah to write it down this way. There's one author. But it has two pictures to it. And the first picture is a theme of the sinfulness of man. All the way through, practically, from chapter 1 through 39, it shows man continually rejecting the Lord over and over and over and over and over again. It's as frustrating as the Old Testament, really. (laughs) They just constantly rejected, constantly rejected. Specifically, it was Israel rejecting their God. It starts right out that way. 
put your bookmark here, whatever. You don't go far back to chapter 1. And I'll show you how quickly this is the theme of the book. As he starts his writing, he says in chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. That's where he starts. Chapter 1, verse 4. Alas, a sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. That's who he's writing to. They turned away from Him. Chapter 3, just a couple more, but chapter 3, verse number 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled. Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. Jump over to chapter 7 and you've got an interesting picture here. I think a perfect picture of the whole thing. There was a king named Ahaz. He was not a godly man. He should have been, but he wasn't. He had trouble, lots of trouble. God to get his attention, kind of brought the enemy up to his neck. So he looks out and there's enemies everywhere. And he was pretty sure they were done for. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't find any hope at all. Trouble. If we could go into the story, it's amazing. Ahaz stood there defiantly in his sin. And Isaiah walks in and says, "Um, the Lord has a message for you. Just so you know, He's going to do something about this. And you could ask for a sign. Anything you want. Or God will do it. He will prove that he's going to be there for you. Ask for a sign. Just ask for a sign. Well, here in Isaiah 7, verse 10, the story picks up. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz and said, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. doesn't matter. Make it as deep as the grave. Sheol. Make it as high as the heaven. It doesn't matter. And Ahaz said, I will not ask That's defiant. That's rebellious. He refused. I will not test the Lord. Mr. Ahaz, you test the Lord with every breath you take. I will not test the Lord, he says. Then he says, okay, listen now, house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? But will you try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Boom! What a message. Suddenly. See, God was looking at these people. He says, you are stubborn. You refuse to turn to me. I can do anything. And I will do what you need. I'll provide for you. I will bless you. Walk my way. Do it my way. They said, no. Ahaz said, no. The people said, no. On and on and on. I can depress you completely with 39 chapters this morning. Absolutely depress you with it. But I hate to tell you this. It looks an awful lot like our world today. No, is what they say. No, we will not. No, we will not. No, we will not. Over and over and over again. That's darkness. 
They refused to acknowledge the Lord. God calling to them, stubborn in their sinful ways, rejecting, rejecting, rejecting the God who made them. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is much beautiful, much more beautiful. It starts with chapter 40. It goes all the way to the chapter 66. Some things in here, it's like, I don't, I don't understand how that works, how it fits, but it's beautiful. Isaiah, this is how he starts. Chapter 40, it's so refreshing. Come, oh comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her, for her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground be made a plain. The rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And he answers, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. This is a beautiful section. He talks about what God is going to do. By the way, who's the one calling out in those verses? John the Baptist. Calling out, make way, the Lord is coming. And then we start moving further into chapters like Isaiah 53. 53, one of the most stunning chapters, I believe, in the Old Testament. As Isaiah starts to pen these things, this it sounds absolutely terrible what we read. But when you talk about the gospel, it's the most beautiful thing there is. He says, who has believed us? Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then he starts into verse number 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It keeps going through here, and you know the passage. It's an incredible thing what God has done to a sinful group of people. If he had not initiated the gospel message, if he had not shined the light, we would have stayed in darkness. We would have never come to that ourselves. Think of this for a minute. I was reading a book this past week, still reading it. It's going to take me a while. It's one of those deep, wonderful books. I like deep, wonderful books. Uh, A.W. Pink is the author. If you've ever read any of his works, you've got to take it slow. All right? And I'm, I'm reading through his book, and he's writing a 
chapter on the solitariness. Solitariness? I think that's how you say it. Solitary. The solitariness of God. He said, what? That's an interesting term. Here, think about this. God created us, right? That's what scripture says. I don't believe we crawled up out of a swamp or with some sort of a blast of some rock or something like that. But scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. And we owe our lives to him. That's clear to me. Think of this, though. In the beginning, God. There was a time, if time could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to him his praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. And that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they would have been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them, when he did, added nothing to God essentially. He changes not, Malachi 3, 6 says. Therefore, his essential glory cannot be neither augmented nor diminished. God was under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create. That he chose to do so was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside of himself, Determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure, for he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That he did create was simply for his manifestative glory. Now, when I read that paragraph, it stunned me, really. Even though I've been studying theology for some time. What stunned me was this simple thing. God didn't need to create us. He didn't need to create us. You know what God sees in man? When he looks down upon man? We got verses of it. Here in Isaiah that tells us what God sees. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22. I'll read to you a handful of Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Or why should he be esteemed? Stop regarding him. Here's another one. I just read it to you. Isaiah 40. It was verse number 6, 7, and 8. A voice calls out. says, what should I call out? All flesh is grass. And its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. The breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. Chapter 40. Again, verse number 15. 
Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor the beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Wow. Send that to the news agencies. They make big deals of everything. God says, I look at the whole of it. It's a speck of dust on my scale. I could just wipe it right off. means nothing. Chapter 40 again, verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth and he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storms carry them away like stubble. When God looks down, he can see very simply nothing, if that was the only view he wanted. Because it gives him nothing. It offers him nothing. It's not a necessity for him. But what he does see, beyond just that, is he sees a sinful man when he looks. And that to me is an amazing thing. To reject the one who made you. To, to reject the one who provides life for you. To reject the one who, who sees you. He gives you every single day so that you could survive on this planet. God looks down upon mankind and in His mercy lets them live. That's an amazing thing to me. And they wallow in their sins and they turn their backs on God and they refuse to acknowledge Him. That's rejection. In the, in the simplest of acts, they refuse to give Him thanks for the very fact that it exists. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't need God. Every time we refuse to thank Him, we might as well just say, I don't need Him. He provides for us constantly, constantly, constantly. And the audacity of the people of Israel in Isaiah's day, when they say in chapter 8, right here where we're looking, in chapter number 8, start in verse number 19. Thus says the Lord, He spoke to me with mighty power. Oh, verse 18. Sorry, 19. When they say, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? You say, well, that's kind of an interesting passage. What does that mean? Isaiah spoke to people's sinful bent. Most people want to know the future. <laughs> Most people say, boy, I wish I did. Even people in Judah were pulled into pagan practices of consulting mediums and spiritists who specialize in trying by whispering and muttering and all these other things to contact the dead in order to come up with answers. It's a sad picture. But that's what they did. It was against, it was against the law. Deuteronomy 18 says, don't do it. But by Isaiah's day, they were doing it all the time. They were 
thought that it was right to go and consult the dead to find out the future. And Isaiah says, why are you talking to the dead when God is alive? Why do you go to them when you can come to him? So they come to men like Isaiah. It's almost as if they're talking to him and they say, Isaiah, do some magic for us too. Do, do something. Bring out a message. Tell us what to do. We're listening. Just bring us a dead person and we're listening to you. Isaiah, bring us something. And Isaiah says, that's darkness. You have your God, but you rejected him for another. You've turned your back on him for another. Anytime we substitute anything for God, for God you've rejected God. And that's what mankind does all the time. And what amazes me is that God doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth when they do it. God initiated the sending of His Son. Chapter 42 of this same book. Look at these words. Chapter 42 starts in verse number 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. The dimming burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth, the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will uphold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon those who dwell in darkness from the prison I am the Lord that is my name I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images behold the former things have come to pass now I declare new things before they spring forth I will proclaim them to you sing to the Lord a new song he breaks into a song of praise. Why? Because the Lord says, I'm going to send you my servant. And he's going to change the course of everything. By the way, it's interesting. When Jesus started his ministry, his first thing to do was go into the synagogue. The first thing he did was picked up a scroll. And the first place he went was Isaiah 42. And guess what he read? That passage. They said, Whoa! Guess who he just claimed to be? The one God sent. The one God sent. God initiated and sent in the light while men were in darkness. In Isaiah 9 verse 2, people walked in darkness. Those who lived in a dark land, they saw a great light. The light shone on them. There's a wondrous miracle in this. Just in the announcement of the birth of Christ alone. How picturesque it really is to read it through again. 
And there were in the same region shepherds abiding out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I try to picture what it must have been like to have been in that field that night. Most of us don't like it when people turn the lights on while we sleep. We usually say, turn that off! I don't think a single shepherd yelled that. They were in awe. Because God initiated something that night. They didn't go to work expecting it. They weren't planning it. They lived in the darkness. They needed the light. They needed the Messiah. God sent him. This is where we're going to start with our Christmas story this year. When we read Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. And when we read it and say, you know, that's where I was too. I walked in darkness. I lived in darkness. If God didn't initiate the sending of the light, I'd still be there. I'm so thankful he did that. His initiation in it all. It's an amazing thing that he should love us so. An amazing thing. Heavenly Father, there are many here in this room who know this story very well. Who would rejoice together with me in what you have done. To save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. Only you would have initiated that in us. And we thank you, Lord, for it. But maybe there's some among us today who have never known who Jesus Christ is or what he's done for them. They've celebrated Christmas like everybody else without the understanding that this is about God sending his son to be our savior because we need a savior. And I pray, Lord, today, if somebody here today does not have Jesus Christ as their savior, they may turn to him right now. For they could believe with their heart, you will save them. And they just call upon your name. Lord, may that happen. For you are the one who causes it. And we come to you and ask for that. Change lives today, we pray. For those of us who know you, may we rejoice all the more this season, knowing that you initiated this message for us. You brought it to us. You gave the light to shine among us. And we rejoice in that. Thank you so much for doing that. May we, may we live it out now in our praises. In the way that we live. We don't live in darkness anymore. We don't walk in darkness anymore. Because we live in the light. May it be so. May it show in our lives. May people see, when they see us during the, even the course of this holiday season, that we believe. We believe the true message. And maybe somebody will ask about that. Because they see the joy on our face. Lord, thank you for what you've done. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.